Hello, welcome back. I am honored and excited to be speaking with Anna Tavis today. Uh, she has co-written a book with Stella Lupashore, Humans at Work. We're going to be discussing that. Uh, we're going to be talking about empathy. And one of the things that I have made a commitment to everyone uh, uh, to start off each episode uh, for the foreseeable future is calling out what's happening in Ukraine and speaking of empathy, empathizing with what's happening with the people over there. Um, please stay involved. Uh, please. Uh, I know it's tiring. Uh, we're effectively a month into the war now. Uh, and the requirements, the needs of the people of Ukraine um, remain there. So again, stay involved uh, and let's keep thinking about uh, our fellow humans over there. And hopefully uh, let's pray for a resolution and peace very soon. So with that as a staging, uh, Anna is one of the most caring, wonderful people that I've had the pleasure of meeting over the course of my career. And so with that, Anna, I'm going to introduce you and bring you in and let's see there you are how you doing hi <laughs> doing great thank you so much al um you know i am so pleased to be on this side of the of the screen because i'm a big fan of your podcasts and all of your guests and i kind of been you know empathizing with all of them as um you know you take us through different conversations on the topic and kind of weaving in these important themes that connect us back to reality so I'm I'm delighted to be dialing in from New York City. Those of you who understand the landscape and the map, right behind me is uh, New York uh, uh, Public Library, which is where my office is. And I can say a few words about where I am now in terms of, of what I do and uh, will be delighted to have the conversation, Al. Well, let, let's make it happen. So if you want to talk about, please, uh, not only the, the book that you've co-authored, but you are the director of the human capital programs there at NYU. You want to share a bit about that? Yep. So, um, you know, I uh, joined NYU um, as a professor um, five, about five years ago. Um, prior to that, I was an executive in human capital management, mostly on the talent side, looking at um, you know, a talent um, acquisition, talent development, succession planning, the whole portfolio of talent programs in uh, in the U.S. as well as in Europe. And um, and I was uh, working in technology and the financial services in my previous career. But I think what's relevant, much more relevant, is when I stepped into the academic role, uh, my mission was to really bring uh, the relevance, the urgency of... Um, human capital management in practice into professional development. And that's where I am. I am uh, directing a program in human capital analytics and technology. It's one of uh, the programs in our portfolio as we are continuing to grow. And as um, um, we're seeing here on the screen, this particular program, we deliberately um, accredited as a STEM program. Uh, which allows a lot of benefits and designed it around uh, STEM skills. But at the same time, um, we were also thinking really hard about how to make the relevant connection to people. Um, I'm sure that you, Al, yourself, and a, a lot of people in our audience um, think about analytics as something 
horizontal, that kind of is agnostic to the disciplines. And uh, we are often asked, why should I bother with people analytics? I'm just going to take an analytics or, you know, technology uh, qualification, and I will be able to apply it in every vertical, in every domain uh, in the business. Um, and we, we really looked into it, and I'll be very interested in your point of view on this, and decided that, no, indeed, we need to have human expertise to be able to apply the data and, um, and technology for good, exactly as um, the title of your podcast. Uh, there are lots of interesting and I think very critical um, and pivotal skill sets that intersect with technology and analytics that allow for this particular qualification to be unique on the market. Uh, yeah. Oftentimes we hear from the businesses, the business leaders that, um, you know, bring, bringing a data scientist into HR and asking them to do the analytics doesn't really work that well because it is a very specific um, specific profession that we're all in. And well, I, I, I certainly celebrate what you're saying and the fact that you have taken the time and effort. And I know you've been at this for a number of years to not only get this program launched, but to your point, you know, make it a STEM program. So it attracts the, the, not only the benefits, but the people who can think of this, not as an ancillary, okay, you know, what am I doing this for? But actually it's going to be fundamental and help their employability downstream. And thankfully our discipline is one of, we have a gross undersupply of talent to do the work that's required in the so the demand for your program is certainly there. So again, I celebrate you and what you all are doing over there. You know, the idea that HR analytics, people analytics is a unique discipline. Uh, you asked me what I thought. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, not only is the data unique uh, because we're taking it from different systems across the employee life cycle and increasingly disparate data from other disciplines. Um, it is the case that we're affecting people's lives. I mean, fundamentally, you know, with the insight we could, you know, any analyst you know, has to acknowledge the level of responsibility that they have when they're analyzing data around behavior around their thoughts and feelings you know and ideas so with that as a staging you know empathy is something that we are you know hearing a lot in the world today um, I love in the chapter that you draw a distinction between what's happening at Amazon and and Microsoft you know you have a, a framework by which to think about it so can you explain it particularly in your i mean i the more i learn about your book humans at work and the fact that the title is what it is and i, I just get all the more excited because it's a it's a narrative that needs to be heard and understood because analytics empathy they're actually very close together and i don't think many have perceived that uh that connection connective tissue if you will so if you would you know what is empathy to you in relation to the program there at nyu and your own experience yeah, thank you so much, Al. I pulled that particular um, chapter from the book um, that in general is about re reverting back to humans with all of the tools and technologies that we have. And as you can see here on the, um, uh, on the image, 
Um, first of all, I acknowledge it's, it just happened that our book is in exact colors of, um, of the Ukrainian flag. Um, and I have the reference to it here in the corner. It's um, the yellow jacket with the blue uh, text. Um, and, um, and empathy has surfaced at front and center in the, and during the pandemic, um, when we certainly had to confront at a global scale with the fact that humans are actually precious and, and fragile and kind of made that, made that pivot for the, at scale for the first time from being uh, exclusively transactionally oriented in our business saying, this is business, this is human, let's just move on uh, to a very different um, uh, posture when it came to leadership. And uh, here I am profiling three leaders uh, who are obviously front and center in different domains, but I think the three um, very powerful examples that demonstrate the importance of what seems to be such an intangible uh, quality um, that we shied away from for uh, a num quite a number of years um, in their specific domains. As you can see, obviously, very current President Zelensky, a, a reminder, I mean, we really had to dig back to World War II and the references to Churchill to even come up with an equivalent political analog of what we are seeing playing out in front of our eyes of how this particular courageous and empathetic leadership plays out. So I think, I think he's definitely a historic figure and we are watching almost in disbelief because we thought we moved away from these heroic um, leaders of the past, right? So that's um, that's on the polit in the political domain, as well as in the context of the pandemic, um, I reference um, Jacinda Ardern, the president of the uh, prime minister of New Zealand, who also stepped up, um, you know, in her empathetic uh, posture and, um, and as a result, her nation fared very, very well compared to the rest of us in the pandemic because she um, she acted from the human-centered perspective in how she aligned policies, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, which I think is closer to what we are all in the business of doing is being on the inside of organizations, looking at people at work. As I compare the philosophies of management, of leadership, of, um, of development, um, uh, of Amazon and Microsoft, and even not to take it to Amazon, but looking at the history of Amazon. I mean, Satya Nadella stepped in, uh, growing from the inside of that organization and brought a phenomenal, you know, empathy to um, how he manages his um, vast and uh, very technical organization uh, in contrast to the leaders that preceded him. So that brings us to the point of, you know, what is going forward going to be really important for us in terms of managing, successfully managing people, organizations, and uh, societies at large. 
And I would argue, as we do in the chapter, um, that a empathetic and a whole kind of um, affective side of human beings, even though we didn't focus on it from the data perspective, is actually, uh, I would say, a goldmine for information. We just need to find tools to tap into that informational um, and informational trove, you know, like informa the richness of that information that we just didn't have the tool to, tools to access. That's why we dismissed it, assuming that we just need to focus on the rational side. Again, underestimating the importance of um, a, a much uh, broader and much more and much richer information uh, space that humans operate in, and um, and to my point on the slides, um, I have a quote there, Al. If we could show it, uh, that I think is very powerful. Right? Um, I think this is really capturing uh, the trajectory of where we are going. And it's important for us as analytics leaders also to be thinking about how we are going to uh, transition, how, what kinds of tools, what kinds of approaches, models, as well as um, mental, um, you know, uh, mindsets that we're going to bring in to the organizations where, which will be led not just with the brain, but also with the heart and mm -hmm. And I think that these two cataclysmic world events got us closer to that point of where we are making a pivot in that direction. And we're looking at, and also from the technology and tool perspective, we are more, much more advanced now that we can start tiptoeing in that direction. We are very early on, but we have the science and we have the tools to really try to excavate that very valuable information for us. And, uh, and that's where, again, I think the role of people analytics that will be able to combine the effective and cognitive side of human decision-making of human, uh, you know, uh, humans at work is going to be really critical and is going to be in organizations that are going to figure out how to do it right are going to be leading in the market. I, yeah, I celebrate what you're sharing and i agree that they're going to not only lead in the market economically but they're going to win in competing for talent uh, you know i there's a lot of people who are excited to be working at microsoft these days uh because of the culture and there are some tech companies here in the bay area uh, and there's a recent story which i'm not at liberty to share but hey it's great job great money but i'm not going to go there because the culture isn't empathetic. It is all about business results. It has kind of this very macho, hey, you know, just get stuff done, get stuff done. And it diminishes the reality that we are human beings, that we have constraints, that we have feelings, that we have, you know, other priorities in our life. And if you honor those priorities in some organizations, then it's okay, you're not focused enough, you're not committed enough. And I remember going back, you know, 20 years, and it's still a construct that's out there, is discretionary effort. Well, if you're really engaged, if you're doing, you know, if you're really committed to the organization, then you're going to take your spare time, in other words, and you're going to devote it to your work. 
sounds good on paper, but what are you trading off? You know, what are the sacrifices that you're making in terms of your health, your personal relationships and, and so forth? So going back to you, what you're saying about the information, where do you think we're going and capturing, you know, people's feelings around uh, what their work experience would be like? And if we can identify, you know, some of the boundaries and some of the aspirations of people, you know, theoretically, we can start for lack of a better term, right-sizing work, not only at an individual level, but in mass at an organizational level. So your thoughts about how to apply empathy, you know, throughout an organization or at scale. You know, this is um, a, a really, really interesting conversation and you can approach it from many different um, angles. One of, um, of course, is the breakthroughs in neuroscience and the research that you know, we, again, in the analytics field also have to pay attention to. Again, it's getting at data, different kinds of data with different kinds of tools, but in the long run, it all blends together. It all merges into this um, uh, pursuit of understanding how to get to productivity, how to get to happiness, how to uh, make people flourish, right? Mm -hmm. So here's, here's something that became so clear to everyone uh, when we were pushed back to work from our homes and um, and at scale, again, globally. Uh, number one is understanding the uh, about the importance of boundaries, uh, boundaries between work and non-work, right? Um, uh, and I do write about it in the book about, for example, work and leisure. The understanding the relationship between work and leisure um, is absolutely critical. In fact, um, so there's no good work without good leisure. And, and that is such an important discovery that we've found out. I mean, everyone is aware on this call, I'm sure, that when we first got the marching orders to stay at home, et cetera, productivity shoot through the roof. Productivity was... Um, you know, something that we didn't anticipate, or, you know, people were, what we didn't know at that time is people were actually burning themselves out. And the consequences of that is, you know, mental illness, they're rising addictions and suicides and loneliness as a real social disease and lots of other unintended consequences. So, and part of it was people did stop working a lot more, but what they lost is that leisure part to it, the separating out the boundaries that existed before. So, and I actually, um, when I started researching it and I'm, I am, um, also kind of a humanitarian, I love history. I like looking back at where did the initial models come from? And, um, um, and I looked at the Stoics, you know, that the whole Stoic philosophy, they, what fascinated me about the Stoics um, was that the Silicon Valley apparently adopted the Stoics as their leading philosophy. There has been so many followers of, of, of uh, some of the most prominent Stoics. So I looked at what they had to say about the leisure and work and and also kind of um, understanding that the stoic way of working, which we all assumed was work, 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 was 
not at all that, that it was actually a balance mm. between leisure and work. And, the, and then uh, the research that came out on the importance of sleep, for example, all the way to then the whole technology developing around will, wellness and companies providing those services to the employees so that they understand that they need to take their a certain number of hours in bed. Um, so, you know, the question obviously, so as work moved into homes, then we suddenly realized that we need to set our own boundaries. And for a lot of people, they didn't exist. And that was a new skill set. So those boundaries needed to be uh, recovered or established. And guess what? The tools started to pop up um, because technology is now shadowing all of our needs. Um, and on top of that, and it's like a uh, 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 circular, um, circular innovation here. On top of that, we, we started to receive all the data that's coming out about people's habits, about you know, sleep cycles, et cetera. And, and that data was fed back into the efficiencies of tools, companies making decisions about you know, um, uh, work cycles, about even the policies around work from home, working um, in the office, et cetera. So um, we kind of went through this whole discovery phase of the pandemic and learned a lot about the effectiveness of work by uh, breaking through those boundaries, putting the right tools to measure what actually happens, and running this huge experiment that produced a tremendous amount of data and that we now can again uh, harvest and put back into improving our well-being on the job, in the workplace, and um, generally in life. Does that yeah, make sense? I, yeah, it makes beautiful sense. And you know, we're at this point in our history, um, and I'm not only talking about you know, overarching history, but in business history. You know, I go back, what, uh, 12 plus years, book Firms of Endearment, you know, Conscious Capitalism. And it showed that organizations that applied stakeholder relationship management, looking out for the well-being of their worker, actually outperformed financially their their peer groups. You also have the case, to your point, where we have organizations that even today are winning the war for talent in the scarce talent market in many job families because they have a more humane approach to the employee experience or their, their culture. So the evidence is out there. However, we still have a lot of legacy thinking. We have this uh, idea of defining what it is to be a, a leader, still being that often man in front of a room commanding the attention, you know, of a large audience, when in fact, you know, we look at uh, Jim Collins, even good to great. Now that's 20 years ago, plus, you know, talk about level five leadership, where it's beyond yourself. So there's all this evidence and, and increasingly from dis different disciplines that show that, hey, you know, we have to honor who we are. And this is actually going to impact how we look at productivity. You know, productivity is output over time in its essence and robots can, they don't need sleep. They don't need all that, you know, but we are, you know, human beings. So honoring those constraints, I think is still to your point, um, we have runway there. And that actually might be a good segue into this uh, depiction, you know, as we start to wrap. Yeah. 
So I think um, if, given the initial quote and what we discussed about discovering, rediscovering, reconnecting um, with our humanity, and also honoring the tools that we now have access to, we actually are moving toward uh, a much more empathetic um, workplace. And to help us, the challenge about empathy before was it was considered to be an individual trait. Um, people were, you know, allegedly born with that or not. And um, it, it was not scalable. So what technology is allowing us to do now is not only imitate life, but also uh, retrain us on the skills. And that's where I see the irony and also fascination with technology. Retrain this, these skills, give, give us back that important feedback and information that gives us then uh, the permission to do what we naturally would have done if it wasn't for all of the ideological noise that was created at the industrial revolution and going forward. So um, I think now we are looking the frontiers, even of AI, the frontiers of technology. I'm and here I in the chapter I do talk about how the whole kind of evolution of empathy occurred. Very recent. Um, terminology, recent uh, recent understanding um, started out with aesthetics um, in Germany and uh, went through various uh, schools of psychology, primarily psychoanalysis in German in German universities. Then uh, later in the last century, we discovered behavioral economics that was kind of splitting off from neoclassic economics and uh, and uh, Milton Friedman which was moving in the, in the opposite direction. Then obviously our friends in marketing and uh, product design and, you know, Steve Jobs um, obviously was, uh, was the um, primary sort of leader and guru in that space, product design and marketing. So kind of in the consumer space, but now we are reintegrated it, reintegrating it back into the workplace. We always follow marketing, but I think not for much too longer. We This century is going to be about people at work. Uh, we were in the consumer world uh, where a lot of innovation happened. Now we are going to reclaim those tools, both analytics and, and technology, and bring this into a much more complex space. And here I'm showing some of the tools, those of you who are familiar with uh, design thinking, et cetera, there are more and more um, technologies and tools that, and the data that are emerging about the importance of all of these different senses that we are blessed with and, and should be using as sources of tremendous information. And then uh, we're gonna reconnect and blend with, uh, with technolo technological tools to be able to scale empathy that is so needed. And just one example here, Al, where I think there's most progress and we reflected in the, in the chapter is done in um, caring for the elderly uh, and looking at these tools um, because we, we are facing an aging population. As we know, there are huge shortages in um, 
in uh, healthcare and uh, uh, home care and uh, assisted living and different types of care for the elderly. And mm -hmm. some of the experiments that are done with uh, the uh, computational um, uh, computational uh, empathy uh, and, and uh, robots that are built um, to specifically care for the elderly or be, being their companions for the elderly are absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, and we are learning a lot about humanity and, and humans' ability to um, uh, personalize those robots and, and bond them with them and give them names and care for the, ro for the robots, et cetera. The, these experiments are happening at scale. And here I'm just um, giving effective computing uh, some of the directions in uh, where um, the breakthroughs in um, artificial intelligence are happening right now when it, as it applies to uh, caring for the humans is this um, both in the predictive space, um, you know, uh, predicting this, uh, the emotional state that, uh, where people are or, uh, you know, predicting people's reactions to um, a, a different set of stimuli. So this is where the experiment is uh, now uh, happening um, across the board in different areas in which humans are interacting at the moment with the humans, but uh, where the robots can step in, those emotionally relatable robots and, uh, and provide a tremendous amount of um, care and support for people who oftentimes find themselves isolated. And there is one uh, line of conversation, uh, Al, that I want to flag to people, it's also in the book, is about how our own relationship with these types of robots, technologies is changing. The conversations are now, I have a whole chapter that talks about comparisons with um, um, animal rights, how we trace the history because animals up until very recently were not considered to be uh, kind of emotionally uh, irrelevant to humans, right? Mm -hmm. And how this whole philosophy, how this whole mindset evolved, and, and it wasn't easy, and how the scientists who advocated for the animals and animal rights, and now we are beginning to empathize and, and, and stronger protect animals, for example, even with the Ukraine. You know, I, I had people reaching out to me saying, you know, can we adopt some of the animals that are being neglected right now and left behind? What is being done for the animals, you know? Mm -hmm. So the question I, I'm bringing that up because I think we're going to, there will be some serious ethical questions asked about technology. How the humans, should these empathetic machines be also given some rights? Because what they found out that, for example, if people start bonding with these tools, with these the robots, for example, they can't commit violent acts to okay. those to those machines because they start, you know, making them projecting their own personal, you know, personal um, connections and emotionally connect with those, and therefore, the big conversation is: should them emotionally um, you know, equipped machines, robots, um, be given a right to be to life, to protection wow. of some sort. Oh, it's wow. a very interesting, 
in in that context, just to throw in something, um, in that uh, instant, the discussion around should these machines be looking like humans? Um, uh, because if they, the more like humans they look, the more they become identical to various types of companions, et cetera, et cetera. And the question of their rights starts to come up. But, you know, wow. go all the way to that frontier, it's a very interesting conversation. Oh, it's a huge, I mean, it's like, it takes, uh, do you like your Apple Watch to a whole new level? <laughs> but it's like when people don't have it, it's like you can see that they're, I, I, you know, I, I'm not my whole self right now. And it's kind of both scary, but, it, you know, you're obviously getting to that. And also it takes, you know, same relationship with your vehicle. It's like you know, it enables you as a human being to do more. Yeah. And, sometimes yeah. people give names to their tools. I mean, yeah. especially children. You know, uh, uh, it's very, it's, it's a question, obviously very, very early, but that's what we do on this podcast on, on this, uh, in, in this discussion is pointing out in the direction, which at this point we might not be even thinking about, but it's coming much sooner than we think it is. Well, and I look forward to reading the whole book in its entirety once uh, able to get it in hand. Uh, but folks can pre-order it now. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. It's coming in a couple of weeks. Yes. All right. Well, excited for you and Stella. And again, I want to emphasize, thanks for being who you are. Thanks for your voice. Thanks for sharing it with me and our audience. So uh, you be well. And how can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Uh, please join me on LinkedIn. Um, if you are interested in the programs, connect with me through messages on LinkedIn. That's the best. I do have a Twitter account, but that's mostly for following people. Um, I think most of us, our community um, is on, on LinkedIn. That's, um, and uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Elle. All right. Thanks, Anna. You be well. And again, super appreciate you. All right. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.